0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by O.V. Books, publisher of Men Undressed, Women Writers in the Male Sexual Experience, a fiction anthology edited by Stacey Beerline. Gina Frangello, Chris Matza, and Kat Meads, with a foreword by Steve Almond. Female sexuality has long been explored by groundbreaking male writers, from D.H. Lawrence to Philip Roth. Now, join a host of contemporary women writers as they imagine all things sexual from the point of view of male characters. Contributors include Amy Bender and Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan. That's Men Undressed, Women Writers and the Male Sexual Experience. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God!
0: You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every
1: stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful. Jake, stated, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy, just
0: one person at just one time. Right, <laughs> right. All right,
1: everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you very much for being here. I'm going to be talking with Gina Frangello in just a moment. She's the author of several books. She's the author of My Sister's Continent. She's the author of Slut Lullabies, and she's the author of a forthcoming novel. Called a life in men which is due out from algonquin in the next year or so it's called a life in men uh gina is also the fiction editor over at the nervous breakdown that's my online culture magazine and literary community i've known her for years i've worked with her for years Uh, she's a fantastic writer and an even better person and she has been in the trenches in the uh, indie lit trenches fighting the good fight for a long time and so to see her have this success And to see uh, her star rising is wonderful. She deserves it. She and I are going to be talking in just a bit. But before I get there, I want to go over a few things, as I usually do. Uh, Moments ago, a little while ago, I was looking through my notebook, my writer's notebook, where I kind of jot things down, little scraps, little tidbits. I was looking at an older section, and I stopped on a page. And at the top of that page, in all caps, I see the following words staring back at me. Stupidity fate, judgment, absurdity, epiphany. And I just looked at them. And I tried to think back to whenever I wrote them down, what prompted that. I couldn't remember. I have no idea. I can only surmise that it was uh, something, you know, thematic. Those were particular feelings or themes that were on my brain that day. I have no idea. Then below that, in all caps, I see this sentence. It reads, If you think this is bad, Just wait until your kidneys fail. And uh, surprisingly enough, I actually do remember the context for this. This was back when I was actually dating my wife. Uh, You know, this was years ago. We were dating, and I got it in my head that I was going to create a bumper sticker that read, If you think this is bad, just wait until your kidneys fail. And the whole thing was rooted in my experience of driving around Los Angeles, being stuck in traffic, experiencing road rage, bearing witness to road rage, understanding that traffic in los angeles is unusually bad and people lose it you know they have an appointment they have a meeting they need to get somewhere they're sick of being stuck in gridlock all of a sudden they're driving up on the sidewalk they're lying on you know they're laying on their horn uh things get ugly and so i figured what if i created this bumper sticker that said if you think this is bad just wait until your kidneys fail maybe that would provide some levity maybe that would provide some perspective maybe people would see that in the midst of some sort of freak out and it would help them reframe and they would suddenly have a better idea of how to deal with their day. I don't know. I'm the kind of person who's capable of believing that he's going to make a lot of money with something like that. Uh, I never did follow through though. I never did make those bumper stickers. Maybe it's something I need to do. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I, I want to get onto some email. I've been getting a lot of really kind emails and I want to thank everybody uh, who sent me something. I appreciate it. I read them all. I try to respond to them all. And, uh, you know, I apologize for not being able to get them all in the air. But, you know, I, I have a hard... I can't just sit here and read nice emails over and over again. It makes me feel silly. But please know that I appreciate it. So, I am going to read a couple just to, uh, you know, give you a sampling. Uh, I got this email uh, just a couple of days ago. Dear Brad, I listened to that Megan Boyle interview. And now I feel terrible about calling her an idiot. I mean, she may be an idiot, but now I want to adopt her and make everything okay for her forever. Not that I would be able to do that, but man, heartbreaking. Signed, Roger. Uh, He's referring to episode 13, my interview with Megan Boyle. Uh, Not an idiot at all. Sweet girl. And, uh, you know, but I do understand. You do kind of want to take care of her after listening to that interview. That's the way I felt. I wanted to, like, make her some soup or something. Uh, So the next email... Dear Brad, I had a long commute between my workplaces in western Montana last week. Knowing it would be a lengthy drive, I loaded up the iPod with other people. Starting with the Jessica Anya Blau episode, I worked my way through three and a half shows. The mountains rushed by on my left, the rivers on my right, but for the first time, I didn't pay any attention to the scenery. I was there with you, eavesdropping on some of the most invigorating, provocative, and candid conversations I've heard in a long time. For one thing... I'll never look at a garbanzo bean the same again. This is one of the most exciting things to happen in our little corner of the literary world in quite some time. I will be tuning in week after week. Uh, signed, David. Uh, his his comment about the garbanzo bean, that uh, that has to do with the Jessica Anya Blau episode. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. You'll know what he means. And finally, uh, dear Brad, I'm 26 years old and stuck in a job I hate. My parents are advising me to stay in said job. I work at a credit union and I want to leave the shit job and go back to school to get my MFA. I'm a writer and I know I'm a writer. Despite being exhausted from long days, I'm up early writing before work and working on the weekends and so on. But the grind of making a living is wearing me down. I feel like I should make the leap, but I'll have to take out student loans to do so. Or I can just keep writing an hour a day and hope that will suffice. I'm stuck. I hate my life. Tell me what to do. Signed, Alexandra. Uh, Okay, Alexandra, I'll tell you a story that might help provide some perspective. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be the answer to your question or not, or if it's going to help you. But I'm going to tell you a story that seems somewhat related. Or that might be in some way, uh, I don't know, illuminating. So I'm going to tell you a story about Hitler. And I know I've talked about Hitler once before on this program. I don't mean to talk about Hitler on this program, uh, you know, but he is uh, someone who you can't avoid, I don't think, if you write narrative, because he's the ultimate villain. And, you know, he sticks in my mind. I I find myself really fascinated with Hitler and and the whole concept of how he even happened. And I think that's, you know, I think that's someone common for uh, writers. How can you not get stuck on that guy? How did that, how did that happen? So anyway, Alexandra, I want to tell you a story about young Hitler, because that's really where uh, most of my imagination goes. When I start to think like this was a child, this guy was a teenager, this guy had pimples, this guy was an idealist. Okay. But not many people realize that. Uh, I think a lot of people understand that Hitler was an artist. He started out as an artist and, you know, that adds a dimension of curiosity, but young Hitler, you know, he moved to Vienna in the early 20th century. He's 19 years old. Uh, You know Vienna was happening back then This was like back when Freud And uh, Mahler and and Gustav Klimt And all those guys were hanging out So Vienna was a place to be Hitler comes to town, he's poor He's dirt poor, he's impoverished He sleeps at a homeless shelter He's sleeping under a bridge He is twice rejected by art school For unsatisfactory drawing skills Uh, The Vienna Academy of Fine Arts uh, Gave him a drawing Unsatisfactory Uh Label. That's what their actual records say. I looked this up drawing unsatisfactory They levied that charge against Hitler. They told him basically that he was no good He uh, then had to resort to drawing postcards making friendly with the tourists in Vienna Selling postcards hoping to scrape by he's 19 years old He's in love with the music of Wagner and this sort of breaks my heart in a weird way young Hitler He's 19. He's a teenager. He loves music the music of the time Wagner. He's into it His favorite painter was a guy named Eduard von Grutzner, okay, who was like this genre painter of, uh, like, drunken monks, jolly, like, happy, drunken Bavarian monks, and Hitler loved these paintings. That was his guy, and another one of his guys was a guy named Alfred Roller, who was a, a graphic artist and a stage designer in Vienna, and Alfred Roller designed sets for Wagner Productions, that were staged over at the Vienna Court Opera. So, Roller was like a master stage designer and graphic designer or whatever. And, uh, you know, his services were in demand. His sets were beautiful. Everybody loved them. Young Hitler revered this guy. He wanted to be this guy. He wanted this guy to be his Yoda. He wanted to study under him. He wanted to learn the trade. He wanted to become Alfred Roller, stage designer, graphic artist. And so, Hitler uh, somehow okay has his mother his mother winds up talking to her landlady her landlady is you know has some connections to the upper crust in vienna and hitler's mother's landlady winds up getting him a letter of introduction to alfred roller no shit and this you know back in the day this is how it worked you got a letter of introduction and once you had that letter of introduction you went up to the person you presented it and that was how you got your foot in the door it was networking okay So Hitler gets this letter of introduction and he goes to Alfred Roller's house in Vienna, his apartment, whatever it was. He gets to the door. He goes there on three separate occasions and never has the nerve to knock. Pacing outside of the, uh, you know, this is how I see him pacing outside in the street, pacing by that door, sweating, clutching that letter in hand, no confidence, no knock, true story. So Alexandra, that's my, that's my uh, thought there for you about whether or not you should uh, ditch your job at the credit union and go on to uh, get your MFA and focus on being a writer. If that's what you really want to do, you have to knock. Otherwise you could become one of the greatest monsters in the history of the world.
0: Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Gina?
2: Hi. How are you? I'm good.
1: (laughs) Where are you? Describe your surroundings.
2: Um, I'm in my living room, um, which, uh... Basically I'm in my house while it's empty, which is a rarity. <laughs> so so it's uh, it's quiet here for ones who maybe have never spoken to me on the phone before when my house is quiet.
1: Well yeah, and I should say that I'm I'm talking to Gina Frangello, author of books like My Sister's Continent and uh Slut Lullabies, the critically acclaimed slut lullabies. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, founder of Other Voices Books. Is that correct? I don't want yes. to misspeak.
2: Yes, yes, that's and, correct. And yes. Just
1: sort of like a, and a, and a college professor and a mother of three children and just all sorts of stuff. And and as you're speaking about your home in Chicago, uh, just to give listeners kind of a, a clearer picture of what we're talking about, you've got this this full house and you also have your father living.
2: And my mother, my parents. Your yes. parents? Uh, there are seven of us in the house um, and two cats. Um, basically, we live we live in an area called Roscoe Village. It's about a mile and a half west of Wrigley Field um, for people who maybe have only been to Chicago to see a Cubs game or something. And um, and it's it's a really cute residential little area. And the houses are really old here, so we live in a really old house, and um, it's a two flat. And so my parents live downstairs from us, but we. Pretty much converted the back of the house so that it's not exactly really a two flat. Like a staircase runs right from our house into their house um, without having to go outside. So, well, so
1: but yeah, that's good so though. I mean, here. like I, I've read stuff about this where, like, you know, it's good to actually have family close and to have that uh, that tie uh, maintained or to have it be strong. And like back in the old days, like not to date, oh, yeah. not to date you or make you seem Amish or anything, or but. <laughs> Uh, you know I think there 's something to that, like having extended family close and having you know I sort of do sometimes have this fantasy of what if my like what if my entire family all lived on like you know within a mile radius of one another what would that be like
2: well that of course I mean you maybe did grow up that way as well um I mean because you know being in Wisconsin, but I mean I did grow up that way my one of my grandmothers lived upstairs for me. my dad was one of seven brothers they all you know the ones who were still living, like their relatives all lived really close by. I had something like Fifty cousins right in a you know a, about a four block radius, You're and um me. no, it was really crazy um, I mean it was great you know when we knew everybody, everyone had you know pretty much been born in that neighborhood, their grandparents had come over from Italy, and you know then their parents were born in the neighborhood they were born in the neighborhood, so it was very much like a small town. none of the women knew how to drive because um you know Italian women of that generation it wasn 't really common to drive. Uh,
1: well, no this, yeah, no, this is, I'm going to stop you there because this is fascinating. My, uh, <laughs> I come from a, my listy is Sicilian.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah,
1: so my dad's dad, uh, you know, his, his father. So my great grandfather came over on a boat from Sicily, uh, with my great, grandmother. They were on the same boat and he was by himself and he was 15 and didn't speak a word of English or something like that. And and then she was with her parents and they met on the boat and then wound up getting married, but
2: Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah,
1: so my my grandfather, uh, Grandpa, you know, Pops we called him, uh, you know, he married my grandmother uh, Rita Duga who was French, you know, of French origin. And she didn't drive. And she she wound up wanting to drive and wound up teaching herself how to drive by stealing the keys to his truck and like just <laughs> taking it out,
2: you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, my mom learned how to drive basically when she was about 70 years old because my father um, stopped being able to drive. He had gotten into an accident because he's got a drop foot and he can't control the movement of his foot very well, and um, his foot was down on the accelerator and he couldn't get it off, oh, great. and he had to end up running his car into a pole to avoid hitting people, sure. and um, after that, he wouldn't drive anymore, so my mother had to go out and learn how to drive so that she could get them around, so now my mother does drive but in my whole childhood she didn't and a lot of the women in the neighborhood didn't some you know some did of course but um but yeah so it was kind of like a small town where we knew everyone and everyone did everything there you know everything was in walking distance and you kind of always stayed there and many people never went downtown even though it was literally you know I don't know maybe two miles away you know it was not very far what now what part of Chicago is this um, it 's over by Grand and Western and um in in my youth it didn 't really have much of a name. They call it now the Grand Corridor, and a lot of artists have moved into the lofts around there and and you know it 's kind of become somewhat gentrified it still has um, it 's still very similar in in pockets of it but um when I was younger it it sort of lived between other areas that had names. We were south of Ukrainian village. We were east of the patch. We were kind of a no man's land um that, you know, I guess I guess didn't bear a name.
1: So you were just and, – and isn't it funny how these, like, neighborhoods wind up becoming, like, hip after all this time? Like, now do you – Yeah, do you, do
2: it's kind of hilarious.
1: Yeah, it's like now it's like, you know, it's like the Williamsburg of Chicago. Is that an accurate representation?
2: <laughs> well, well, I wouldn't go that far, um, but it but it definitely is a completely different – I mean, it's a completely different place now. It's got, you know, plenty of restaurants and cafes and what have you, you know, like, you know, young grunge musicians and such. And now, I mean, you know, when I was younger – literally everybody who was, everyone was the same, you know, I mean, it was like Italian people and Puerto Rican people who were all really, really blue collar, you know, the Italians had been there for a really long time. The Latino people were a little more recent, but you know, really similar lifestyle. Like we, in the late eighties, I remember um, a guy, a yuppie decided to build a house in the neighborhood and he was building this weird white monstrosity of a house and no one had ever seen anything like it and he liked to jog and no one had ever seen anyone jog before either so we would all like stand by our window and watch the yuppie jog around the playground and be like, look, the yuppie is jogging. What's he doing that for?
1: No (laughs) one's chasing him. What is happening Exactly.
2: Exactly.
1: It was like, yeah, yeah, jogging jogging is strange to me. Watching people jog, I, I don't think I've ever seen, I shouldn't say never, but... It's it's really rare that you see someone jogging who looks attractive while jogging, if that makes any
0: sense.
1: Do you know what I'm saying? Like everyone just they, they always look like they're going to die. There's just that, that pained look, and it, it looks like no fun whatsoever, but I guess it's producing some sort of high
2: yeah you don't have to convince me You're yeah. preaching to the converted. <laughs> no. I'm not much of a runner, no
1: neither am I. I don't like it uh so you know, so this was kind of i mean was it kind of a rough neighborhood or was it was it only rough if you didn't know what you were doing i mean what, what
2: it, you know it, it that's that's kind of exactly right to some extent is that um you know if you were known, if everyone knew who you were, you could walk around very safely in the neighborhood i mean I had a great deal more freedom. To walk around, you know, at night and and you know whenever, um, then my kids do. Our neighborhood is much "quote unquote" safer, um, but it's different in the sense that you just don't know everybody, you know. So you can't just say to your kids like, "Oh, go to your friend's house, you know, four blocks away and come back at nine o'clock at night." You know, when they're young, you wouldn't really let them do that. Whereas when I was my kids, you know, my kids' age, I roamed anywhere in the neighborhood I wanted to. And, you know, you generally came back when the streetlights came on and blah, blah, blah. Your parents didn't necessarily know where you were. And that was very common of the time. But you were not in any danger as a kid. You know, if you were John Frangello's daughter, you were somebody else's daughter, you know, everyone knew who you were. The neighborhood was very unsafe um, if you were an outsider, Um you know, if you were the wrong race, if you didn't look like you belonged there, if no one knew who you were, if you looked like maybe you were from a different gang. You know, we had a lot of episodes of violence in the neighborhood where, you know, kids were beaten up or where someone was shot and killed and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, you know, until until the late 80s, um, it always tended to be an episode of violence at somebody who mistakenly ended up there or came in looking for trouble. And if you lived there, you felt pretty safe. That started to change in the late 80s. There were, uh, there was basically, there were several murders um, where a few people in the neighborhood were killed accidentally, like sort of in crossfire type situations. And then there started to be a massive exodus out to, you know, the south suburbs, the west suburbs. A lot of people, including many members of my family, fled the neighborhood at that time.
1: And just got out. So that I means, like, yeah. aside from all that stuff, there is something sort of, like, uh, idyllic, in my mind anyway, about growing up with all this family and knowing everybody, but yet still having access to a bigger city. Like, it wasn't like you were cloistered in some sort of little village in the middle of nowhere. Right. You're in Chicago, but yet yes. you literally had 50 cousins. That's a lot of cousins. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I had, I had a lot of cousins. I mean, I probably have more than that now. Um, not not all fifty of them lived within a four block radius. That would be an overstatement. But no, I, there were a lot of us. I mean, I could I could make you a little lineage. Well, that. no, like this is this is this is
1: like this is almost to the point where like when you became like a teenager and you're going out or you're you know you're you're sneaking into bars or whatever, like you meet somebody, you have to check to make sure you're not related to them.
2: Like you know. oh, it's so funny. I have I have a cousin who met her cousin accidentally in a bar. Yeah, Did they yeah, that up? actually happened. That happened to two of my cousins. No, they got in a fight, and then they found out they were related.
1: Perfect. Well, thank thank God. I mean, it could be worse, right?
2: I know they could have they could have gotten they knocked each other up or something. That's actually
1: that's actually a good idea for a story. I mean, that's an I mean, that's had that has to have happened at least once.
2: I'm sure it's happened. Ugh,
1: oh, God, can you imagine? That would be terrible. So. Uh, what kind of kid were you? You know, I, I've read bits and pieces on the nervous breakdown, and I, you know, obviously, we we know each other, so I've gotten kind of a sense of of you. But I mean, I'd be interested to hear you talk about it, like when you were when you were growing up, and particularly as you got into adolescence, like were you a, a rebellious child? Like,
2: well, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I mean, my neighborhood was a a really nice place in many ways, in the idyllic way that you were talking about, where you know everyone and you have a lot of family and, you know, yet you have the the wider urban landscape. Um, when I was a lot younger, I didn't have much of a sense of the wider urban landscape. Um, I craved that. I wanted to know about different ways of living and different types of people other than just where I was growing up and just all these people who I had known since birth and who seemed to have a very set idea of like what kind of life you were going to have, what it meant to be a girl, what it meant to be Italian, what it meant to, you know, to just how you were supposed to live, what you were supposed to think. And I never felt that I fit into that paradigm. Um, obviously I think most writers would probably say the same thing about their childhood, regardless of what their milieu was. You know, they would say, Oh, I felt like an outcast. Da-da-da. And that was definitely true of me. Um, I always was craving to get out to find out what else was out there. And um, so I went to a high school, an academic high school that you had to test into across the city. i had always felt um, very strange in my neighborhood because I just started trying to write a novel when I was 10. I didn't like to play sports. I got migraines. I always was like in the house writing and reading, which, you know, were considered extremely eccentric pursuits um, at best. <laughs> so you're ten, and, um, years,
1: 10 years old and you're writing a novel.
2: Yes, I was writing a novel longhand on that on this crazy roll of butcher block paper that like um, my mom would buy because it was cheap, and um, we would rip it off and into you know these slabs, and I, I wrote like a four hundred page novel on this crazy brown paper. <laughs> Jesus Christ!
1: You know, I mean, this, I hear this story. I mean, because I've talked to a lot of writers now, and, and I've talked to a lot of writers, uh, you know, at the Nervous Breakdown, and I hear this story fairly often about these you know writers who very at a very young age started writing books like it makes me self conscious cuz like i was like i don't know what i was doing when i was 10 but i sure as hell wasn't writing a 400 page novel you know i was like playing take the can and like wiping <laughs> you were boogers probably having the-
2: a better time <laughs> yeah i was
1: i was like a neanderthal i was like wiping boogers on the wall and like, playing tag at shopping <laughs> malls and i don't know what i was doing
2: yeah you know i mean i um i think what drives kids to do that kind of thing is that sense of not fitting in or feeling lonely. I was an only child, which was very, very unusual in my neighborhood. So while I had a lot of cousins, I was one of the only people who lived basically in a house alone with my parents. I mean, everyone had really large families. Um, And, you know, so I was, I was alone. I don't want to say a lot because I had a lot of, uh, a lot of relatives and we were outside a lot. and. You know it was a very familial cultural culture but um but I was alone more than most people and um my dad was a lot older than everyone 's father. he was the age of people 's grandfathers, and my mom was older and was not from the neighborhood, and so she kind of didn 't really fit in herself and had not really negotiated her own place there, so I felt um you know, very apart. And I think that writing was an early refuge for me as it often is for people. So I was, um, I lost myself a lot in books and, and, you know, writing my own and as well as reading and just trying to see what other possibilities were out there in the world, you know? So, well,
1: what about your, what about your parents? I mean, did they have an, or either of your parents, uh, artistic, like yeah. have a literary bent?
2: My parents are both very artistic in, in, in different ways. Um, neither one of them has ever really written, um, but they both were drawers. My father always used to draw when he was younger. He used to get in trouble all the time in school because he didn't do his schoolwork. He would just sit around and draw pictures of horses and things like that. Um, I was kind and, of like that. In fact, <laughs> yeah, I'll, he, I'll
1: interrupt you with a funny, like, I mean, this is a semi-funny story, but... When I was meeting my wife, uh, she noticed that like I was constantly doodling like I, I do it if I have a pen and a piece of paper and I'm talking to you I'm probably drawing you know one of my little cartoon men or whatever it is and uh, this is something that I get from my mother because she always did that as well and uh, I was talking to, to my wife Carrie when we were dating and, and she's like, "Oh you know you really like to doodle." And I looked at her completely sincere and I was like, "Oh yeah you know my mother was a doodler." and like as if it was like some sort of thing like a profession and i don't know became this running joke you know his mother was a doodler
2: well my parents were doodlers and um yeah they were always drawing and my dad was you know and is a complete jazz freak i mean he just loved music when he was younger his older brother was a saxophone player and um you know kind of introduced him to jazz and he was so passionate about it. I mean, he spent all his time kind of going to jazz clubs and collecting records, and, you know, so he was very interested in that world. My mom, you know, she had, she was a little more serious about art, and she she went further in her education. My father didn't even graduate from eighth grade. He, um, he left school and started working at a factory when he was like 13. My mom finished high school, and she wanted to go to college, but her Her family wouldn't send her, but um, she was really interested in art. She was really interested in education, wanted to be a teacher, but that didn't pan out for her. But um, she ended up doing some singing at jazz clubs and um, became a big jazz freak herself. And she and my parents, uh, she and my dad met through, through jazz, basically. They got set up by a. A mutual friend um, when my father was shooting off his Italian mouth saying how no women knew anything about jazz. This guy was like, well, I know a woman who knows more about jazz than you do, and they went on a blind date.
1: Wow. Now, how old was your dad? You <laughs> said your dad was a bit older, so he was in his 30s yes. at this point, or
2: 40? Yeah, my dad was, my mom was 25, and my dad was uh, almost 36 when they met, And um, and by the time I was born... My mom was about thirty-six, and my dad was about forty-seven. Oh wow!
1: So they went. They were they were together for a while before they had. They were you.
2: together for eleven years. My my mom was thought thought ever since she was eighteen that she was infertile. So they had been together for many many years. Um, no expectation of having kids. Never you know, never use birth control. And then all of a sudden, there I was. And
1: there you were. And so did you <laughs> did you get along with them as a kid? I mean, was it was it? A oh good, yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I I I've always gotten along very well with my parents I mean you know my mom and I went through our period in my early adolescence where all we did was scream at each other you know but but I mean on the whole I was very very close to them as a small child and you know by the time I was in my mid-teens my mom and I had had you know passed that stage already and we were very close again and um, I lived out of state at one point for eight years, and then another point for you know a while on and off when, when my husband and I were in Europe, and um, my mom, you know, my mom and I were always ridiculous. Like we would talk on the phone for a day and run up these astronomical phone bills. So I mean, I've always been extremely close to them, and a lot of people are like, how can you stand to live with your parents? But you know, and they're believe me, they're eccentric, as you probably know from T N B. You know, they're odd, they're odd people, but I don't have a hard time getting along with them at all.
1: Well, that's good. I mean, obviously, clearly you don't if they're if they're living with you at this point. Point, then they did something right. I mean, you know, <laughs> otherwise uh, I know I know plenty of people who, you know, the very idea of that would be a, a horror.
2: <laughs> yes, as do I. And I know plenty of people who are living with their parents would be a horror to me, you know. But, um, yeah, my parents are very cool. They're very cool. They're hilarious. On t- you know, I mean, my dad – basically almost everything that comes out of his mouth, I'm on the floor laughing, like whether he even means to be funny or not. He's just, you know, he's just hilarious. So how old is he now? He's got to be, he's he is going to be 90 in uh, December. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's a good run.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's uh he when I was born, he told my mother, "Well, it's a shame I'm not going to live to see her start grade school," you know, and then like every, you know, every so often he'd be like, "Well, too bad I won't live to see her get married," you know, now like literally my poor dad, like literally everyone he knows, like everyone from his youth is dead. Like it, he is like the last man standing. And he was the one who was always sick. You know, he had like Two thirds of his stomach removed before I was even born. He was always in and out the hospital with these hemorrhaging ulcers. Like he's had so many medical problems, and he's like outlived everyone. Is crazy.
1: You know, that's kind of how my grandmother was. She had like she had ulcers and had two thirds of her stomach removed, so she could only drink these very tiny beers. This is my mother's mother. <laughs> I mean, your dad can't eat huge meals, right? He's got to eat, like, small portions or no?
2: You know, he, um, I mean, this happened so long ago that his appetite is is much more normal now. Um, when my mom first met him, he was completely skinny. My mom was like, he looked like he had gotten out of a concentration camp, and he could <laughs> hardly eat anything. He was never allowed to drink because his ulcers had been so bad for so many years that, you know, he was that proverbial, you know, bartender who didn't drink. He owned a bar when I was younger and um, and, you know, just never touched alcohol. So, yeah, he uh, but as he got older, he, his stomach seems to have stretched out again where he can uh, he has quite the old man appetite now. <laughs> oh, he does. OK.
1: And he owned a bar but did not drink.
2: That's right. Yes.
1: Like, was he ever a drinker, or was this just like feeding a um,
2: drink? Not much. Um, you know, he got sick very young. I mean, he's had an ulcer since his early twenties, and um, and one of the very early things that they told him, you know, was to stay away from alcohol. And um, you know, he had two brothers who were alcoholics, one of whom he owned a bar with, um, and he had seen what it did to them. You know, so and that brother that he owned the bar with passed away. Um, as a result of rupturing his his esophagus from so much drinking, Christ. and so you know he, uh, you know I, I think you kind of didn't need to tell him twice. You know he saw that he was a pretty frail guy. He had come near death a number of times, and you know my whole childhood it would basically be like every once in a while if we go out to dinner, my dad might drink half a beer and he'd get drunk on it and not be able to eat his food. <laughs> so but um, you know so yeah no I don't really remember him ever really drinking.
1: Well, And then your mom, was she? did she also abstain? I mean, I guess if your husband's not drinking, it's probably...
2: You know, she, I mean, it wasn't... Um, it's interesting. I just did an interview on the drinking diaries, and I was talking about, like, you know, in Italian culture, drinking is just not a very big emotional issue. Um, you know, kids are allowed to kind of drink casually earlier than, you know, than kind of like a more waspy American culture. And, and so, I mean, the fact that my dad didn't drink, it was never really an issue like my mom isn't a big drinker but she would drink in front of him if you know we were at a family party and people were drinking and he used to keep a bottle of gin on the back porch for when friends from his bar would come over he'd make them a gin and tonic um you know so it wasn't like it wasn't like living in a house where someone was in AA. you know it was like he didn't drink for medical reasons but there didn't seem to be a lot of you know emotional difficulty tied to that or anything we weren't you know like Purposely all abstaining from alcohol or anything like that.
1: So, like, yeah. Well, so, what happens when you get into high school? Like, and you're obviously probably. Oh well.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, my well, of course, in my old neighborhood, my parents are lucky that basically, like, you know, I wasn't a cocaine addict and pregnant by the time I was twelve. You know, I mean, it was a it was a wild neighborhood. You know, I mean, there were there was a lot going on in the neighborhood well before you got out of elementary school. But I was a book geek, so I did much less of that than than the average kid. Um, so, you know, yeah, my, my partying days mainly started once I got to high school. But, you know, my parents could both relate to that. This is another thing I was saying on the drinking diaries is that um, it's interesting. Like one of the things I saw in high school is, you know, the level – of dishonesty between so many parents and kids, where it's sort of like, with their beer at that party, you're never going out again. Like, you're grounded for a month. And, and my parents weren't like that. Um, you know, they had both partied when they were young. You know, my mom was the Chuggalug Queen in her old neighborhood. And, you know, the Wait, was this an was Queen back then. Yes. <laughs> That's what they called her, the Chuggalug Queen. They really did. Yes, they really did.
1: <laughs> that is awesome. That could mean a, that could mean a lot of different things, by the way. In, in a
2: oh, I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> With that like my poor mom is now, and when she hears this, is going to be like, oh, thank you, Gina. thank you. <laughs> but, um, but you know, she she was uh, you know she was a little bit of a wild girl, and my dad certainly everybody in in the old neighborhood. I mean, my father had done plenty of things, you know, and and so I mean. And at that time, I mean, partly because they were so much older, they had come up in an era where you really were an adult at an earlier age than how we look at it now. I mean, you know, my father had left school when he was 13 and was working at a factory. My mom, you know, had moved across the country to California by herself, not for college, you know, just by herself with nothing but a suitcase and no job when she was 18. You know, they didn't tend... To look at me when I was, you know, 16 or whatever, as being this little kid who they had to protect from everything, like I, I think they were looking at it through the lens of their own youth, and so they weren't terribly restrictive, um, which at- fabulous. And now that I'm a parent, I'm kind of like, holy smoke, they trusted me more than I really deserved.
1: Right. Well, no, that's interesting, though. But, I mean, and it turned out okay, though. I mean, clearly.
2: Yes, I turned out okay. I turned out
1: okay. But it's interesting because, like, I came from a background of, like, this, you know, sort of oppressive, and and I use the word oppressive lightly, I mean, or to a degree lightly, uh, Midwestern suburb where there was a lot of like, it was like, just say no culture. It was the eighties. It was a lot of parents freaking out about their kids having even a beer. And the cops were, you know, like, a you know, like we were talking about before uh, the show got rolling, you know, the cops were sort of uh, bored and focused on teenagers as, as sort of like, you know, with an almost, it was almost like a pathology. I mean, truly right. in, in the town that I was from. And I, you know, I look back on that and I look back on, uh, you know, substance abuse education Uh, and the substance abuse education that I got. And I always, I I, kind of shake my head because it was so, to me, to my mind, it was so poorly done. Uh, Right. There was no like real honesty about what the different drugs were and, you know, all of them were sort of lumped together and it was put under this, you know, umbrella that was labeled bad. Absolutely. As soon as you, as soon as, you know, so pot was heroin.
2: Yes, exactly. No, I mean I remember that from the larger culture, you know, I mean you saw a lot of that in the 80s. Um, you know, and and on television and you know, I remember a show on Oprah uh, about, you know, drunk driving, which of course is a real issue and I had a friend who who died in a car accident when we were 17, you know, driving drunk and and were you, were you, so, you in know, the car? it but um but the but the ways of approaching it tended to be Really, you know it, just not anything that would resonate with kids at all, you know and and that was vastly unrealistic um you know my parents. I don't know. They were, my my dad had certainly, you know, he had experimented slash done many drugs, you know, in his life. I mean, that was just a fact of life in our neighborhood. You know, everyone had access to that sort of thing when they were younger. And, you know, everyone had tried something at some point. And my mom had grown up a lot more clean cut than that. But like I said, you know, she did her share of, of you know, wild things too. And so my my parents were always kind of the house where, you know, if you had had too much to drink and you kind of couldn't go home, you know, my house would be the house that you could go to, you know, among my friends in high school. Um, And my parents wouldn't like interrogate people and ask them a lot of questions. And, you know, they were kind of just like happy to let you sleep it off. And they had, which I do think of as a sort of Italian mindset of like better to be close to home and have us know what you're doing than, you know, alienate you and have you have to lie to us about everything. And, I did still lie to them to some degree. I think you have to lie to your parents to some degree when you're young. It's just a rite of passage. Like, you have to separate from them. But, um, but I think I lied a lot less than most of the people that I knew because I didn't have to lie about the trivial things. Like, is there beer at the party? Of course there's beer at the party. You know, you're, you're 16, you're 17. Of course there's beer at the party. You know, you're right. like, you're not going to maybe tell them everything, but you, I didn't have to. Lie about every small trivial thing, you know, there was an understanding of what life is like for teenagers, you know, and, and so it was odd that my parents were the oldest parents, but they had a more instinctive understanding of that. But they weren't those parents, we had a lot of these in my old neighborhood, they weren't those parents who like, You know, like a single mom would have had her kids so young that she was trying to be her kid's friend and was, like, partying with her kids and getting high with her kids and, like, sleeping with her kids' guy friends. Like, we had some of that. And my parents were so far from that. Like, they were a respectable, you know, middle-aged, like, almost post-middle-aged married couple who didn't even drink, you know. So it was like they were... Permissive, but they were also very staid and parental in their own way. So it was, you know, it was good. Um, I, it, I don't know if there is a perfect way to approach this stuff, but they were good.
1: So what are you going to do?
2: That's a good question.
1: That's coming Grant. up. How far, how far <laughs> off are you? How far off? You my you daughters
2: see. are eleven, and um, you know they're going into sixth grade, and it's really, God, it's really a very hard question, like that, you know, how much do you tell them about your own youth, you know, like how, how, what stance do you take on, you know, things like drinking, things like smoking pot, you know, like at what age do you take what stance, you know, I mean, if I think to myself, like, well, of course, I know that at some point they're going to, you know, do these things, like, that's a big difference than being like, well, okay, you know, they can start doing it when they're 12. Like, I mean, you know, you don't want, you just don't know what to, and which was common in my old neighborhood, you know. Um, I, I hope my kids really wait until what is thought of as a more appropriate age to experiment, you know, that more mid-high school type of thing that where, they're, where they're not even really thinking about this stuff in the next couple of years, you know, I, that's my hope that that they're being raised very differently, that they have other things in their lives that they're focused on, you know, that they have passion about, um, you know, whether they're more challenged in school, they have more interesting extracurricular activities, you know, they have, they go places, they do things like it's you know, small town life or really inner city blue collar life, like it can be very stagnant, you know, people turn think out of boredom you know thrashing boredom having nothing to do and um you know i hope that it's possible for kids interested in that as young as they kind of have more going on and more to stimulate them you know an exciting city and traveling to other countries and you know school that actually seems to matter to them and and you know meets their needs and people who are discussing things with them and giving them an opportunity to, you know, be thinking people and have an interesting life. Um, but we'll see if I'm if I'm just deluding
1: myself. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like it's so funny to hear you talk about like, you know, how life can become staid and boring and I you know, I don't know if I know anybody who didn't feel that way regardless of where they grew up, about the place that they grew up. I could be yeah. wrong. Maybe there are some exceptions, but like, you know, I'm from, uh, is that your phone?
2: Brad, yeah. It's my daughter, actually. Can you pause for one second? Is that okay? I'm, I'm, like, totally sorry.
1: So, uh, no, but I was just talking about how people, no matter where they're from, tend to uh, sort of at some point in adolescence feel like it's the biggest drag ever. And I'm trying to to think on uh, maybe some of my friends from Colorado. Maybe some friends from California, uh, you know, because I, I, I'm from India. I, I went to high school in Indiana, and, like, right, you, you right. grew up in Chicago. Like, you had Chicago. Yes. Like I'm from a suburb north of Indianapolis. Like, if I would have lived in downtown Indianapolis, it still would have been, you know. <laughs> yes. I mean, so, uh, like, whenever people are like, oh, it was such a drag, and it's like, where were you? It was like San Francisco. It's like, oh, No, 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 no.
2: <laughs> You don't get
1: that. You don't get that.
2: <laughs> well, you have to understand, I mean, like I agree with you. I mean, I I totally agree with you. I love Chicago. I mean, after many having lived many other places, I'm back in Chicago. I think it's a great place to grow up. I mean, I'm raising my kids in the city, going to public school, you know. I mean, I I really agree with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were broke. Um, You know, we were very, very broke. Everyone in the neighborhood, no one had any money. Everyone was below the poverty line. You know, so we had no cash. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do it. Like, you know, even literally, like, we didn't have access a lot of times to knowing what was even happening in the city because none of our parents ever took us to a museum or, you know, I mean, just it wasn't that kind of place. You know, the parents treated the neighborhood like you would a small town. They sat out on their porches every day talking to the same people they had known since they were three years old, you know, about the same like small town gossip, you know, small neighborhood gossip eating their lupini beans and like, you know, their coffee cake in their house dresses and like not knowing how to drive. And that was it, you know, and I remember when I got to be about 12 and finally starting to really take the bus downtown to the water tower in Michigan Avenue with my friends and, how unbelievably exciting that was. I mean, it was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was, what was really there, you know, a 20-minute bus ride away from where you had grown up where there was just nothing. You know, there wasn't even anywhere to go out to dinner. And um, and yet, feeling really on the outside, all it took was to kind of arrive there to see that you weren't dressed the right way, you didn't have the right hair, you know, you you just like... You couldn't shop at any of these stores, you, you know, you had no money, like, and so there was that sense of like, okay, there's this cool city, there's this amazing city, but, but we are outsiders to our own city. And in high school, that finally passed. I mean, I made friends from, from all over the city by being at a high school where you had to test academically in. There were 6,000 students at the high school. Uh, and um, they were from all over the place. It's huge. It's bigger than most, you know, many colleges. Um, and, you know, so just at that point, you know, kind of starting to, of course, you get your fake ID and you're going to the dance clubs. And, you know, you're working, you're babysitting, you're waitressing, you're doing, you know, so you start to have a little bit of money. And, you know, going to parties and going to the beach and doing these things with your friends. Like, at that point, I mean, I was no longer bored. Like, in high school, I was not bored at all. In fact, I I'm often you know, the weirdo at the party who's like, oh, I loved high school. You know, everyone's like, high school, hell. Like, if you liked high school, you're a fascist scum. You know, (laughs) and it's like, no, you don't understand. Like, high school for me, you know, it was like I'd been sprung from prison. I mean, it was like I... I had access to this whole city and I was meeting people of all different races and ethnicities and religions and economic groups and, you know, seeing what my city had to offer. Like my my head was exploding with excitement in high school, you know, but when I was younger, I was in Chicago, but I didn't feel like I was in what I now know of Chicago.
1: Yeah, well, sure. Now that makes sense. And then You you know, you leave high school and you go off to, is it Wisconsin?
2: I went off to Madison. Um, I went went out of state to school. Um, I really, you know, no one ever left. Like, no one in my family, no one in my neighborhood. Like, no one ever moved away. No one ever left. Um, I was not the first person in my family to go to college at all. My my cousin Mark was also in college um, while living at home. And um, so he was going to a local college, and he was in college at the time I started. Um, so, but I was the first person to go away to move anywhere else you How did, know? That, how did and, that
1: happen though? How, how did you land at Madison?
2: Um, I had a really good friend in high school who was bound and determined to go to Madison and another good friend actually still one of my best friends and myself both from my neighborhood we had just no template like none, none of our parents had gone to college we had no older siblings who had gone to college we didn't know what we were doing and so our one friend dave who you know came from an educated family his father was a professor and you know he knew what he was doing and we basically were like okay dave is going to tour madison we'll go with it you know and, and he kind of just like made his decisions and we were like yeah let's do that too because we just didn't know what we were doing
1: that's smart that's smart you're like let's pay attention to this guy and like just follow him and that that's actually- Actually, not. I mean, that that was an intelligent choice.
2: Yeah, it wasn't the worst thing. It wasn't you the worst followed, thing, yeah. Yeah, you,
1: could, you could have followed someone to a different school. I mean, who knows where you could have gone? But you picked a good guy to follow.
2: Yes, you know? yes, exactly. Yeah, Madison was very nice.
1: So, what was it like? You get there, and did you did you find that you know high school? You were you were well prepared, or was it a huge assimilation process, or was it fairly seamless?
2: Well, it was interesting when I first got to Madison. I did have a hard time adjusting. I mean, first of all. You know, I'd gone to an academically competitive high school, but it was, um, I don't know, it wasn't very hard for me in high school. Um, I hadn't studied a lot. I hadn't taken it all that seriously, and I'd still done fine. And when I got to college, I didn't have a very strong work ethic, and I didn't know what would be expected at college Like literally when I first arrived at Madison. I mean, my, my funny story that my mother tells everyone is that I didn't know what a syllabus was. So like, I just sort of, I, I tend to be a little absent minded and I guess you know, uh, but <laughs> but I, I literally just kind of took all my syllabi from my various classes and like threw in a pile somewhere. Like I didn't know that, Oh, there was going to be a written template of what you had to do all semester long in your class. I didn't know that was going to happen. So I would go to class, and I'd be waiting for them to tell me what the homework was and what to read. And when no one would say anything, I would be saying to my mom on the phone, like, God, college is so cool. We have no homework. Like, no one ever, you know, And and literally then, like, my first round of exams, like, I just, like, I failed everything. And... You know, at best, like we would get a C or something. You know, and then I had to wake up. Like I had to be like, oh crap! I literally don't know how to be in college. Like I don't know what I'm doing. Like I have to, I have to talk to people. I have to find out like what the fuck I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> and um, you know, I I got my ass in gear. And I mean, like, you know, I graduated with honors and blah blah blah. You know, but um, but I I didn't I didn't have any. I just didn't have any idea. I, I had to learn the hard way. But um, And also, I thought Madison was very small when I first got there. I had never been anywhere, you know, other than Chicago, and I'd spent my high school years really enjoying the city and going out to clubs and things like that. And, um, and so, for me, like, going to Madison and, like, kind of standing around, you know, the little Wisconsin bar with the beer and the plastic cup, you know, like... It, I wasn't excited. You know, I was like, Oh, <laughs> this is kinda lame, you know? And um and it took me a couple of years to kind of fall into that that has its own thrill, that has its own loveliness, you know, that's very fleeting and that you're not going to have again, you know, just like sitting around the student union and going, you know, to your small little college bar and that not everything had to be like a big, you know, glamorous 1980s Chicago dance club, you know, like I, I came to really love Madison, but it wasn't instant love.
1: Yeah, well, now I have friends who were raised in big cities and I always felt like they maybe adjusted to college life better. Like they didn't go through that crazy freshman thing where, you know, you get loaded five nights <laughs> a week. and yeah. Because they're just like, oh, well, you know, if we were doing this stuff in high school. or
2: it's, it's true. Yeah, 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 definitely. You don't need to like go to Madison and cut crazy loose, you know, if you've spent high school years in Chicago or New York. or Yeah, that's totally true.
1: Yeah, it's like I had a buddy. I mean, he's like the sweetest, most well-adjusted guy ever who had the most unconventional childhood uh grew up in Manhattan, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I did all my drugs in high school. I I committed arson when I was a freshman, and he got to college, and he was just like, he was like Buddha. He was like, yeah, this is so silly, you know, and it was like, I, I of course, was like, you know, I don't know what I was. I was playing bongos, and, you know, I... I it's like so excited to be somewhere where like nobody was like you know trying to arrest me for.
2: Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I went to college with a with a friend of mine who went to the same high school as I did. She had um her her family they were immigrants. They'd come from the Philippines, and um her parents were really really overprotective. So even though she lived in Chicago, she wasn't permitted to do anything. You know, and um she started high school. I mean, she started college having never kissed a guy, having never had a drink. I mean, you know, she was just this nice girl who went home and studied like crazy every day and took dance class. And I mean, she hit... College and it's exactly you know I mean within a week she's like getting tied to the bed for menage a trois and like you know <laughs> basically like you you have to like take her coke from us you know a shovel I mean she just is, she was went crazy and um yeah it, and it was kind of like oh my god <laughs> so yeah I think that is um when I think about how restrictive parents are with their kids and I think about my own kids like I think it is really all about you know what's age appropriate and learning, learning moderation, you know, I mean, it's not age appropriate to be experimenting with drugs when you're 12 years old, you know, but it is age appropriate to want to do some partying, you know, when you're 15, 16, 17, like if you start high school and you've never done, I mean, you know, start college and you've never done anything, you're in trouble, you know, like your parents can't have been so restrictive that then for the first time you're not living with them and, and you're going to burn yourself out. You're going to get killed. You're going to get pregnant. You're going to get AIDS. You know, you're going to go nuts.
1: Right. That's exactly right. So part of being a good parent is allowing your daughters and my daughter, when she gets to be that age to do these things when they're like 15 and you're going to know it too. I think I'm going to know it. There's a, I feel like there's a certain uh, naivete to certain parents and, I just can't imagine that my daughter's going to walk in the door at age fifteen, and no matter what she's done, that I won't have at least some clue. But maybe, maybe oh, that's I know. maybe that's naive. Maybe maybe she'll be better at fooling me than I think. But uh, you know, you're just going to have to sort of keep an eye on it, I guess.
2: Yeah, you just have to. I mean, you have to, and and it's like, but it is interesting. I mean, I um, I definitely notice, um, you know, the the parents that my kids are growing up with. I mean, they're really good parents, but they are probably a little more restrictive and a little more overprotective than I am. Most of them did not grow up inner city. Um and, you know, have a lot of fear about the crime in the city, even though, of course, the crime rates are way lower in Chicago now than they were when I was a kid. Um, but, you know, like, in, just in terms of not really even wanting their kids to, to kind of walk home from school by themselves yet, or you know, like, not wanting them to, like, say you're at a mall or something, and, and you know, like, separate for a short period of time where they can then, I mean, they all have phones, you know, they can text you and say, like, I'm at this store, you know, can we meet in 20 minutes? Like, I... I'm at this club. I did, you know... <laughs> I mean, obviously, hopefully not that yet. But you know, I mean, I I tend to think it's good to give your kids a little freedom in those small doses. But um, but I'm finding I have to be careful. I can't permit any freedoms um, when the kids have other kids with them because it's generally not okay. It's not okay with the other parents.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no. I mean, that's that's the other, that's got to be sort of strange too when you have responsibility for somebody else's kids. It's, yes. hard, it's hard enough just to keep track of your own. Then all of a sudden, you got somebody else's kids, and their their set of rules that you're supposed to adhere to. And
2: yeah, you have to be there. you have to definitely you always have to err on the side of caution.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, so getting back to Madison, did you did you major in English?
2: Um, I did not. Um, in my opinion, only people who trust funds should major in English. I was <laughs> <laughs> I was basically like, yeah, what would I do with that degree? I majored in psych. Um, I had a whole plan of how I was going to, you know, I was going to get my PhD in psychology and have a private practice. Um, you know, I, I probably said on TNB at some point, like literally the only writer I had ever known growing up was an unemployed guy who lived in my parents' garage and um, like had ants all over his floor and had never published a book. And he died young. He was a drunk, you know, I mean, he was a very smart man, actually. He was a very nice guy, a very close friend to, friend of my dad's. It's a common but a you know, it was not a role model of wanting to be a writer. I mean, I started college with my parents making less than $10,000 a year. You know, I was all on, on schol- you know, grants and and loans. Um, I was not going to have my parents to fall back on when I got out of college. I was going to have to repay what loans I had, you know, taken out on my own. And, you know, and I was probably going to become financially responsible for my parents to some extent. You know, at some point, and I have no brothers and sisters, so it was fairly imperative that I figure out a way to make a living. You know, and I was, you know, artistic enough and sort of creative enough that I couldn't stand the idea of like going into business or something like that. Um, <laughs> but I, um, you know, I, I really thought about like, well, what can I do that will be interesting to me in a particular way my mind works, but that I, it will allow me to make a living. And I decided I was going to be a therapist and. You know, and I went all the way through my master's and practiced for about four years before I defected and (laughs) ran back to to get my master's in creative writing in my 20s.
1: So now, what kind of therapy? I mean, what was your specialty?
2: Um, I specialized, uh, basically I worked, um, for the years that I worked, I I worked at a better women's agency, um, so I, I ran groups and did individual counseling, and I also did a lot of just kind of any kind of troubleshooting where I would take people, you know, to get their food stamps. I would take people to get their restraining orders, like I kind of did, you know, whatever was needed. Um, and then the next year, I opened a women's wellness center at a hospital in a prison town in Windsor, Vermont. Um, and so I was mainly seeing... Uh, some female guards, mainly like uh, women who had moved to that town to be close to boyfriends, sons, fathers, um, and you know who were in the prison. Um, and then my last two years, I um I worked for a private foster care agency where I ran groups um, for girls who had been taken out of their homes for sexual and physical abuse. Um, And that was very similar to the work I had done at the Better Women's Agency just for a younger population. So that really was my specialty. So
1: now you left Wisconsin and went to Vermont?
2: Yeah, I met David um, out in in Avignon, France, in 1990 when we were both traveling, and um, we, you know, fell madly in love. And I followed him out to uh, where he was going to graduate school, which was Dartmouth. So we, I ended up in rural New Hampshire.
1: Oh my God! So you guys met in Avignon?
2: Yes, we we did. Is that the, is that the
1: walled city, city where the Pope used to live? Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah. We met it. We met at the train station at 4 a.m.
1: Nice. Now give me that story. <laughs>
2: Well, um, basically, I was—I uh, had been living and working in England on and off for a couple of years. At that point, I had gone to school my junior year in London, and I had a boyfriend in, in England who lived in Newcastle. And so, as soon as I graduated from college, I had to go back to Madison to get, like, you know, kind of these final credits taken care of. And I immediately booked right back out to England and was, like, you know, planning to be out there for quite a while. And then immediately my boyfriend and I of two years, like, broke up, literally like four days after I got there or something. And um, and so I was like, okay, now I'm depressed and I'm not here, like, doing any kind of clear thing. I, I'm here to get a job, but before I get a job, I want to do something else. So my friend Alicia came out and met me, and we just decided to do, like, the Urail pass thing for a month before I got work. And um, so I took all my money I had made for college graduation and got the rail pass and we headed to um you know we headed to Avignon. um and we basically, like, got there and didn't know how to work the French money because we had never been to France before. And we looked across the train station, and there was this blonde guy standing with a Chinese woman. And so we said, they must be American. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so we walked up to them and started asking them, like, how do you use the money? And the blonde guy was David. And, um, and so we... Ended up, we were all staying at the same little hotel, Hotel du Parc, and it wasn't open yet, so we all ended up in the same park, like kind of waiting for the hotel to open because it was the middle of the night and sleeping on benches. And then we lost track of each other the next day. Um, I actually went on a date with a French waiter and, you know, had forgotten david was alive but then (laughs) my friend alicia met um ran into his friends in the breakfast room and we all found out that we were all going to arles the same day and so we were going to meet at the train station again and and we ended up spending like 13 hours together that day and just talking all day and by the end of that day he decided to leave his friends and come with us wow well
1: see that's (laughs) the way that it's supposed to happen
2: that is the way it's supposed to happen. And then when I was going to move out to rural New Hampshire for him, all my friends were like, "You are crazy! You're on crack! You're going to be home like in one month with your tail between your legs. You barely know this guy. Like, you know, I had always said I was never getting married and blah blah blah. <laughs> you know. And, so, but yeah. <laughs> so wait, now he
1: and he was at Dartmouth, so he's a smart guy.
2: He was at Dartmouth getting his PhD in space physics.
1: Oh Christ. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, like, that doesn't even begin to make... I don't even know what that means.
2: I would try to explain it to you, Brad, but I would just make a fool of myself. (laughs) It's been like we've literally been together for 21 years and I still don't understand exactly what... He did research on the Earth's magnetosphere. Um, He did something about, like, when a spacecraft would pass through plasma waves, he would convert it from numbers to pictures so that they could be... Read instantaneously. I probably just said that totally wrong. Thankfully for me, he went into finance um, in 1995, which I also don't understand. But like, I, I can fake somewhat better. <laughs> than I could space physics.
1: So this guy's a genius. He knows space physics and finance.
2: Well, in finance, uh, he actually he does know finance by now. He's been in the industry for a while. But he, um, when he first started out, he didn't have to know anything about finance. Everyone was trying to hire physicists because um, this was when basically things were moving online. Trading was moving online, and um, they, there was something about the kind of programming and the kind of numbers that physicists did that um, you know was desirable on Wall Street and here in Chicago. And and so uh, David, had, you know, was having some trouble. Finding, you know, a a professorship after um, after he got out of college, he was he had a postdoc from NASA, and he was here at at University of Chicago doing his postdoc. But he was worried he was going to have to leave, like when the postdoc was done, because U of C wasn't going to have any openings, and there were only like four or five space physics departments in the entire country we were afraid we were going to end up in Fairbanks, Alaska or something. Uh. And so um, he was reading in Scientific American about how all the physicists were defecting to Wall Street because of uh, cuts in NASA funding. And so he bought a suit and made up a resume and went down there and his friend worked down there and introduced him to the sky and... He was like, you know, I'm looking for a job, and the guy literally said, yeah, well, I'm looking for a physicist, and David handed him the resume and got hired on the spot.
1: <laughs> wow, and the rest is history.
2: <laughs> the rest is history.
1: So, so how long did you guys date before you got married?
2: Well, I mean, we never really dated, you know, I mean, we um, we were traveling together, which meant we were together 24 hours a day, we were like sleeping in the same room, you know, spending all day together every day. Um for a few weeks it was like that and then he moved you know he went back home and i was still in in england um and then we had a little weird period wherein he was writing me but i had moved around so much that i wasn't getting his letters and i thought he had blown me off and gone back to some old fiance he had and i was devastated i started living with another guy we weren't in touch for a while and then one day he called me in the middle of the night and um he had tracked down my number through our friend alicia and um and I immediately started plotting to go back and see him. And so I kind of like got out of London within the next couple of weeks and I went up to New Hampshire to visit him and we decided I would move in. So then I spent a couple of months like trying to earn money in Chicago so that I could drive cross country and move in with him in the middle of a recession. And we moved in right together. So, I mean, I don't think we ever had what would you, you would really call a date. <laughs> So, I don't know. I we, I Now we have dates. Now that we have kids, we have to get a babysitter and have a date. But before that, we always just, like, we were living together from 15 minutes after we met.
1: Well, no, and you, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you, you did not mess around. Like, this guy in England breaks <laughs> up with you and, like, within, what, a week you're in Avignon, like, on some romantic whirlwind? <laughs> and then you come back and... Think you know this guy's writing you love letters that you're not getting, so you're like, whatever. I'm going to move in with this guy. I mean, like, you
2: know. well, it was you know. I mean, I was living basically like one one step above squatting in London at that point. I mean, you know, I was working at a bar. I I basically had no money. I had moved into this flat with about like eleven men and one other woman, and we were from all over the world, and you know started kind of I got involved with a guy that I was already living with you know so and I thought I'd never see David again but that poor guy I have to say like if I thought he would listen to a uh, TNB podcast type thing I would be apologizing because all I ever did was talk about how I'm in love with this guy (laughs) He's not uh, not writing me oh
1: my god that's awesome that's an awesome story you know (laughs) who meets on a train platform in the south of France that's pretty great (laughs) Everybody wants that to happen, but you know nobody gets uh <laughs> nobody gets that experience except for you apparently
2: it was awesome david's so, awesome
1: so now uh writing wise you know you do the psycho- uh the psychology thing you're in Vermont. You're in upstate you say upstate New Hampshire, or is that right
2: yeah, we were in Hanover, and then you know we moved around we were in Norwich Vermont, like you know we, but always in proximity to dartmouth
1: and so when do you start uh when do you start writing fiction?
2: Well, I started writing a novel that later became my sister's continent, so sort of the first version of that um I started writing it pretty much the year I got married in ninety three um you know it's weird. Marriage was a weird thing for me. I mean, I, um, I was madly in love with David. I had made huge sacrifices in order to be with him. So it wasn't like I was ambivalent about the relationship, but I truly had always believed I would never get married. And I was not entirely pro marriage at that time. And suddenly I found myself the first of all my friends to get married at barely 25. Um, and I kind of had, I guess, you know, one of those little crisis moments where, you know, I just, I started writing and like within about three months, a 400 and something page novel had poured out of me. I wasn't sleeping. I was just writing, writing, writing. And it, you know, it was a mess. I mean, it was just a hot mess. I had never tried, you know, I hadn't written a novel since I was 10 or whatever. And, um, and I, you know, I cared a lot about it. I was obsessed with it, but I knew it wasn't good enough. And um, I had called in sick a ton to, you know, to, to work on it and blah, blah, blah. I was just obsessed with it. And David eventually convinced me that I needed to take some time and really, you know, get it workshop, get people to look at it. And so the plan was that I was going to go back to graduate school for creative writing once we moved back to Chicago after his program was over. And I was going to do that for two years and then go back to being a therapist. But, um... You know, I never went back. I started working at Other Voices magazine. I started teaching. I started a PhD program. I started writing another novel, you know.
1: <laughs> but you know what? It's all, it's all sort of really, wait, are you getting your PhD or do you have your PhD? No,
2: I, um, I, I went basically all the way through the program until it was time to do the test. And, um, and then I stopped. I, um, I, I wasn't really after the degree. I was after like the student lifestyle. And by then I was already teaching, um, at Columbia college and I was already had a draft of a novel and, you know, was looking for an agent and I just kind of lost motivation. So I, I got my master's and I, I was sort of one of those everything, but dissertation type PhD people. Gotcha.
1: Gotcha. So, uh, I feel like the the things that you do, though, I mean, all of it's related. Having a psychology degree seems to be one of the more compatible degrees to have with a writing career.
2: Well, yes, definitely. Right? Definitely.
1: I mean, and, and then also, especially since you teach, I mean, I've taught creative writing before, and, um, you know, it's essentially like you're everybody's shrink to a degree.
2: Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, you know, some some workshops more than others, but yes, I mean it, it comes in handy to have been in a room full of crying people at some other time in your life. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, one of the last things that I uh wanted to talk to you about and I think is fairly interesting is like, you know, in your writing, uh you know, you really deal in a frank way with sexual issues uh, or just sex in general and um I find that that's not always the case or is often not the case in (laughs) writing. Like, how did did you, is this something that you just take to naturally? Is it something that you kind of like really liked as a reader and felt like, you know, it wasn't done well enough and so you tried to address that in your own work or?
2: Well, I think both things. I mean, I definitely took to it naturally. It's always been, I mean, obviously not when I was a kid, but I mean, like ever since I was taking you know workshops in at Madison. You know I took some for fun, even though I wasn't majoring in creative writing. I studied with Lori Moore out there, and I always had—I just always had a lot of sex in my stories. Like I—I I always viewed sex as a really great window to character development. Um, and I—I—I I, I also just—I like intimacy in writing. I—I I really, you know, it, if I were to have any complaint about literary fiction, it's that I feel that sometimes. Characters are just held at too great of a distance, not because of the same reason as with really, really plotted mainstream fiction, where it's like the character development is secondary to the kind of like page turning plot, but more of like a weird sense of politeness um, where sometimes like things just don't get messy and intimate and raw enough in terms of what really is motivating character or what makes the character tick. And I think about writers who I love, like whether it's Mary Gateskill or, or even like a contemporary, like Steve Almond. you know, and it's like the thing that I love about, you know, my favorite books or my favorite writers tend to get very, very messy and up close and contradictory and personal with their characters. And I feel like, you know, while not everybody on the entire planet is obsessed with sex, and so if all you ever write about it is sex, and, and every single character is equally obsessed with sex, that would be ridiculous. But I do feel like a great deal of people on this planet think a lot about sex. You know, sex is really important to people. Um, You know, the getting it, the lack of getting it, the, you know, keeping it hot, it not being hot, or, you know, just past demons around it. And so I've always just... Been drawn to what we can learn about people through their own, I guess, their personal sexuality, but also how we, what we can learn about people and the power dynamics between them um, in terms of how they interact with one another sexually. So that's always been something that I've been really, really, uh, I guess, that I've taken to as both a reader and a writer. Um, and I, I don't think that I really realized um, until much later. Kind of how much I do it recently somebody referred to my work as like the love child of Mary Gatesville and Philip Roth, which I love just <laughs> like i I want that on my my you know headstone <laughs> but um but yeah, so I guess um it's interesting because. I don't tend to think that my work has actually all that much in, in terms of sex scenes in it. There's not a lot of this goes there, you know, like his hot throbbing, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's it's more a preoccupation with like the psychology of sexuality. I think. Well, that's what I was going mean, to ask
1: you because it's like I think writers often resist – Uh, writing sex scenes because of the difficulty of actually writing the sex scenes, you know, how to do it well. right? There is, of course, that award for, like, the the worst sex writing.
2: Yes, I know. Which
1: is hilarious. I mean, you read this stuff, and it's by guys like Philip Roth, or, you know, they're... they're, And you read this stuff, and and it's, like, laugh out loud funny because it's so embarrassingly bad or it sounds so bad when it's read aloud or whatever. And, you know, so the question, you know, becomes, how do you do it well? Like, some writers can write about... Sex and do it in a direct way, or do it in a way that isn't, uh, you know, embarrassing or, fun or do you know? You know right. what I'm saying? It isn't silly. Yes. And then other writers try to do it, and they're really gifted writers, and it doesn't work. Like what works? How, how, do, how do you do it?
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think it just has to rise so much from who you're writing about. I mean, that to me, like, if you are close enough with the character, I mean. A sex scene often is embarrassing or awkward or disturbing. It's not always just sexy and, and fun and hot, you know. But but it's not like you the writer should be so, oh, oh what am I gonna say next? And like, oh I'm so embarrassed you know, it it's like it should be like that person having sex, you know. So if that person is an awkward, embarrassed person, you know, like or I don't know. I think you just have to be so caught up in In the moment, uh, which is what's required of writing any kind of scene, right? I mean, certainly like any type of really emotional or really pivotal scene, you have to be, you have to be right there with the character. You have to believe you are the character. You have to not, you know, like if your phone rings and, and you have to speak to someone in your real life, you have to be like, who the hell are you? You know, because the real world lives inside you know, this computer screen or, you know, this piece of paper. And so I don't know. I just, I haven't had a hard time um, getting lost in that, but I think very little of what I write in terms of of sex could be called erotica. And maybe if I were trying to make it really hot, I would have a lot harder time.
1: Yeah, yeah maybe that's it. That's it, you know. It's like trying to write something that's actually going to turn somebody on, but this is just like real sex. Is that it? Is that... <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Real disappointing sex.
2: <laughs> Just, you know, yeah, it's uh I mean, sometimes it turns out better than, you know, than I expected as a writer and my characters like have more chemistry than I thought they were going to have going in, but usually, I don't know, I guess I would say like if the sex is perfectly functional and and great and everyone's happy about it, then probably that would be the sex you least needed to write because You know, we're all kind of familiar with what that's going to say. You know, it's usually like, it's usually when something goes awry that you would want to, you know, put it down. It's that Janet Burroway phrase of only trouble is interesting in fiction. So, like, only trouble is interesting in bed in fiction,
1: too. Sure, it applies everywhere. So. Well, it's been a, a great talking with you. I will, uh, you know, uh, think good thoughts for you and your novel out there in New York in the <laughs> summertime. Thank
2: you, thank <laughs> you. Oh my gosh, <laughs> well, this sounds like it's going to be a really fun series. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what you've got, what you've got up next. Yeah,
1: no, it's fun. I'm like, I like talking to authors and and talking to them about more than just the book stuff. You know, because a lot of them have like you a lot, you know, really interesting backgrounds and they're falling in love at train stations in France this is the stuff I want to know you know I think people people want to know this and I I also think that uh, you know writers don't get enough credit for being good conversationalists so hopefully we're addressing that
2: Yes, we're supposed to be like an introverted, antisocial lot.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, we're like like all cutting ourselves and like can't communicate at all.
2: And we all hate each other. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. So, thank you, Brad. Yeah, no, it's great talking to you. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye-bye. Okay, everybody, there you have it. That's the program. There is Gina Frangello for an hour or a little bit more. She's a joy to talk to. If you want to track her down on the web, go to ginafrangello.com. Her first name begins with a G. Her last name is spelled F-R-A-N-G-E-L-L-O. You can find her on Twitter, at ginafrangello. This program, it has a website, OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod. You can find uh, the show on Facebook if you're a Facebook person. And if you want to email me, it's letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Uh, And here I'm going to make my little pitch. If you like the show, if you're enjoying it, if you're getting something out of it, if it is enriching your life in some sort of meaningful way and you want to help support it, help me keep the lights on, help me keep it going, please sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It's a simple thing to do. You just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, you click on Book Club in the menu bar, and you sign up. It's $9.99 a month. It's less than the cost of a movie ticket per month. And in exchange, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. So you get something for it. It's not just a cash giveaway. You get a brand new book every 30 days for less than the cost of a book. It's a good deal. And better yet, every single author in the TMB Book Club, I will be talking to right here on this program. So you can read the book and then listen to my conversation with the author or vice versa, whatever your druthers. Uh, I would certainly appreciate it if you can swing it. So closing thoughts, uh, you know, looking through this notebook again, I find that I wrote down that Herman Hess was once a patient of Carl Jung. There's an interesting factoid. Herman Hess, the guy who wrote Siddhartha, once a patient of Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst. And I also wrote down uh, Billie Holiday died with $750 taped to her leg. So that's an odd one, sort of sad. I think if you die with a large quantity of cash taped to your person, uh, it is likely that the circumstances were not ideal. Uh, but then again, when are the circumstances ever ideal? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, last thing on my mind, I, I can't go. I can't help but go back to Alexandra. I think of Alexandra, uh, the young lady who wrote to me, the one who's working in that credit union, the one who is uh, hating her job and wants to know what to do and is thinking about making the leap and trying to get her MFA and taking out a big student, uh, student loan. That's a conundrum. It's a, it's a conundrum with which I can empathize. And uh, You know, I just feel bad and I don't know exactly what the answer is I look back at that uh, page that I was talking about at the top of the program those words in all caps stupidity fate judgment absurdity epiphany I try to imagine Alexandra in some credit union somewhere. I don't know where she is I just know she's in a credit union. I'm trying to see her I'm trying to imagine her behind that window dealing with people giving them money plotting her escape Alexandra, if you're listening, I'm encouraging you to have courage. And, you know, if you think this is bad, just wait until your kidneys
0: fail.